Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Second World War, Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, U.S. Neutrality. So we have to ask ourselves, what was the United States doing while Europe was at war? Well, if you recall, Americans had passed the Neutrality Acts of 1935, 1936, and 1937, since most Americans wanted to stay out of European conflicts. But in 1939, Congress authorized the sale of arms to belligerent nations on a, quote, cash-and-carry basis, meaning that these nations had to pay in cash and carry it on its own ships, as to avoid the entanglements of the First World War. In September 1940, Congress also passed a conscription law implementing America's first peacetime draft. By November, FDR was re-elected to an unprecedented third term due to the lingering depression and the World War. By March 1941, Congress passed a Lend-Lease Bill, which ultimately extended $50 billion worth of arms and equipment to the Allies. In addition, the United States believed in the Atlantic Charter, meaning the free navigation of the seas, the self-determination of peoples, disarmament, and a vision for a post-war settlement. Though, Americans still did not want to get engaged in the conflict. However, events were quickly spiraling out of control. As by fall 1941, U.S. ships were patrolling the Atlantic and were engaged in a running war with German submarines as we attempted to carry supplies to Allied ports. For all intents and purposes, the United States had entered the European War, albeit on a limited basis. Over the course of the Second World War, the Battle of the Atlantic raged, and for two years there was an undeclared war between the United States and the Nazis. There were over 100 separate convoy battles, in which 3,500 merchant ships were sunk, 175 Allied warships destroyed, and 30,248 Allied casualties. However, in the process, the Germans suffered greatly, as they lost 783 U-boats destroyed and 28,000 German submariners killed. So just like the Eastern Front, being a submariner is not a job you wanted. Please advance to the next slide entitled, War Looms. Meanwhile, relations between the United States and Japan were quickly deteriorating. If you recall, the United States had acquired the Philippines and Guam as a result of the Spanish-American War. And if you also recall, Japan was engaged with a conflict on the Chinese mainland. Japan's next step was a quick move into Southeast Asia, where they seized French Indochina, which is modern-day Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. The United States responded by freezing all Japanese assets in the United States and enacted a trade embargo on many items, most important in which was oil. The Japanese imported 88% of their oil, which was crucial for running their war machine. So essentially, they had two options either seize the Dutch East Indies, which had a lot of oil, or negotiate with the United States. If they chose the first option, 
they might be vulnerable to a U.S. attack from the Philippines, so they chose the second option. These negotiations dragged on for several months, but by late November, the talks had broken down. The United States had intercepted and decoded bits of Japanese communications, indicating that an attack would likely occur in early December, but the question remained where. FDR and his aides thought the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, or British Malaya or Hong Kong might be the most likely targets. Meanwhile, the United States Pacific Fleet was docked at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, which was 3,500 miles away from Japan, and thus seen to be relatively safe. Unfortunately for the United States, Japanese leaders had decided that they had to destroy the United States Pacific Fleet to ensure Japanese dominance of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Thus, a fleet of Japanese warships, including six aircraft carriers and 360 planes, crossed the Pacific in complete radio silence. They attacked in the morning of December 7th, 1941, and caught the Americans at Pearl Harbor completely by surprise. That morning, two radio operators had detected a large number of planes heading their way, but they assumed it was a group of B-17 bombers scheduled to arrive from California later that day. They were wrong. During the attack, the Japanese sank four U.S. battleships, three destroyers, and damaged or destroyed 288 planes and killed 2,400 Americans, making it the single bloodiest attack on American soil by a foreign power. Luckily for the United States, the three carriers of the Pacific Fleet had been gone on exercise, and their survival would be crucial for the war effort, as the Pacific War would be an air war, not one between battleships. Please click on the PowerPoint and watch the clip from the movie Pearl Harbor. Okay, so did you watch the movie? I hate that movie, but it's a good battle scene. Anyway, on December 8th, 1941, FDR asked a joint session of Congress to declare war on the Empire of Japan, calling the previous day a date which will live in infamy. The Senate voted unanimously for war, and the House voted 388 to 1 in favor. Please listen to FDR's speech clip. On December 11th, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States, which was arguably Hitler's second greatest mistake of the war. The point is that Germany and Japan had seriously miscalculated American resolve, and the United States now geared itself to enter the war. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Japanese Offensive. From December 7th to the 8th, 1941, the Japanese struck several places in the Pacific, including the Philippines Islands. The commander of the Philippines was General Douglas MacArthur, and if you recall, he had led to the dispersal of the Bonus Expeditionary Force in 1932 during the Great Depression. MacArthur was an arrogant and controversial commander who carried a riding crop and smoked a corncob pipe. Inexplicably, MacArthur's allied forces, which consisted of American and Filipino troops, were unprepared for the Japanese assault. After intense bombing, the Japanese landed in the Philippines on December 22nd and pushed the Allies back to the Bataan Peninsula. 
allied troops, ate mules and donkeys, and were plagued by malaria and other tropical diseases. The Allies' brave stand was publicized to the American people, who were still reeling from the disaster at Pearl Harbor. Because of the disaster, no relief forces were coming to the soldiers at Bataan. Then, on March 12th, FDR ordered MacArthur to leave his men and go to Australia so that his great commander would not be captured by the Japanese. Consequently, some of his troops called him Dugout Doug. When he arrived in Australia, he arrogantly announced, quote, I came through and I shall return, end quote. The Allied troops he left behind held out until April and May when they were forced to surrender. The Japanese ultimately captured over 75,000 prisoners and marched them 80 miles to prison camps. When exhausted and malnourished Allied troops stumbled and fell on the march, Japanese soldiers bayoneted them, because in the Japanese culture, the idea of Bushido, or the way of the warrior, emphasizes that surrender is dishonorable. And so Japanese troops had no respect for the surrendering allies. As a result of the brutality, over 7,000 Allied troops, including more than 4,000 Filipinos, died in what was called the Bataan Death March. By May 1942, the Japanese had also successfully captured Guam, Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, the Dutch East Indies, and Burma. Thus, the Japanese controlled much of Southeast Asia and the South Pacific, at least for now. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Anti-Japanese Hysteria. By Executive Order 9066, in February 1942, 110,000 Japanese Americans living along the West Coast were sent to various internment camps, including ones located in Rower in Jerome, Arkansas. Over two-thirds of those interned were American-born, which made them citizens under the 14th Amendment. Despite this, the Supreme Court upheld this executive order in 1944. And as a minor point of interest, one of those interned was a child, George Takei, who later became famous playing Sulu in the television show Star Trek. In spite of this injustice, a number of Japanese Americans fought for the United States in what was called the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which we will talk about a little bit later. As a result of the internment, Japanese Americans lost over $400 million in confiscated property and missed wages. In an attempt to make up for this injustice, the country paid $37 million in reparations in 1948, and later, in 1998, they approved a reparation of $20,000 for each survivor, though this still paled in comparison to the amount of money lost by those individuals. We should note that only the Japanese were subjected to this type of treatment, since there were fewer than 1,500 quote-unquote dangerous German or Italian aliens who were interned in such camps, despite the fact that millions of Germans and Italians lived in the United States and were not persecuted. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The American Home Front. Wartime industrial production ultimately ended the Great Depression. The United States became what FDR called the arsenal of democracy, and automobile plants started making tanks, jeeps, trucks, and airplanes. Hitler's top deputy had quipped 
quote, the Americans can't build planes, only electric iceboxes and razor blades, end quote. In fact, U.S. factories produced over 40 billion bullets, 300,000 airplanes, 86,000 tanks, 76,000 ships, and 2.6 million machine guns, among other armaments. Critically, women made up 36% of the wartime workforce, and this was exemplified by the image of Rosie the Riveter, who inspired numerous women to contribute to the war effort. More on that in a minute. Overall, the U.S. government implemented rationing and price controls during the conflict, but compared to people in other belligerent countries, most Americans on the home front did not suffer very much. Though I will say that my grandmother to this day remembers how her favorite toys had been taken away in order to be melted down into lead for bullets. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Women at War. In order to prosecute the war, 15 million men and 350,000 women went to military camps to serve in some capacity. In 1941, when the U.S. entered the conflict, the only women in uniform were part of the Army Nurse Corps or the Navy Nurse Corps. These women served in a critical capacity as medical aides and nurses to doctors and hospitals behind the front lines. After the conflict broke out, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or WAC, was formed in May 1942. Another branch was the Women Accepted of Voluntary Emergency Service, or WAVES, which was created for the Navy and the Marine Corps in July 1942. Most enlisted WAVES worked in jobs traditionally performed by women, such as clerical work, healthcare, or storekeeping, though a few took over jobs typically held by men, like aviation machinists, metalsmiths, parachute riggers, control tower operators, radio operators, yeomen, statisticians, and weather forecasters. The Coast Guard did add a women's unit that November, and in the next year in 1943, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs, was formed when two all-female pilot organizations merged together. Ferrying military planes was the primary duty of the Women Air Force Service Pilots during the war, and these pilots transported newly built planes from factories to military air bases all over the country to be used in training and combat. By the end of 1944, the WASPs had ferried more than 12,000 planes in the United States including basic trainer planes, fighter planes, and heavy bombers. While women were not allowed to serve in combat, 432 women were killed and 88 were taken prisoner during the conflict. The point of women in the military was not to go into combat, but to free men of combat roles. Many women were treated with disdain, not only by service members, but by their families. The concept of freeing a man to fight was used by every other branch as part of their recruiting, and many women joined because they truly felt it would help bring a loved one home sooner. However, the families that had men still stateside did not like the idea that their men could be free to fight, and so this was not necessarily an alluring idea. Many men would have preferred to stay and have a safe job in the United States, and not everyone in uniform wanted to fight. The idea that they were replaced by a woman to be put in harm's way made some men and their families just like women in uniform. Now I want to show you one of the recruiting videos the government made for recruiting the WACs, 
and this will give you the idea of the type of expectations the U.S. government had for women in uniform. These type of propaganda videos were very important for the U.S. war effort, and they were made for all kinds of things. To encourage people to sacrifice for the war effort, to get women to work in industries, to recruit soldiers, and to convince many Americans to trust former enemies, like the Soviet Union. Okay, so did you watch the video? I want to highlight part of the video that discusses female concerns in joining the army, such as no nail polish and no fixed hair. Each branch actually felt it was important to emphasize the fact that women would not have to become any less feminine by the time standards by joining the service. Makeup, nail polish, and feminine hairstyles were not only allowed, but encouraged. Uniforms were specifically designed to reflect those worn by men in the service branch, but were distinctly feminine. Purses and heels were standard issue. Despite the importance of women in the service as being seen as feminine, they were frequently and purposefully referred to girls and not women, and there were restrictions on their ability to marry, although this changed over time. However, women in uniform were generally not allowed to have children under 18, and should a female service member become pregnant, she would be immediately discharged regardless of her marital status. Because they were originally formed as a support for the army, WAX initially did not receive rank benefits, or even pay equivalent to men in the regular army. But then in July 1943, an important step was taken when the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps became the Women's Army Corps, and officially became part of the U.S. Army, and this enabled WACs to serve overseas as they could be given proper benefits should they be killed in the service. Once the transition to WAC was complete, African-American women were accepted for service, and the 6,888th Central Postal Directory Battalion was the only all-black female unit to serve in Europe during the war, and they provided a vital service, sorting through a male backlog of millions of letters that were important for maintaining morale at the front. The point is that women of all stripes and colors came together to fight for their country, and we should remember their sacrifices. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Coming Out Under Fire. When the war began, many Americans, regardless of sexual preference, enlisted to serve in the United States Armed Services, including many gay and lesbian Americans. The United States military hoped to screen out these quote-unquote mentally ill individuals and asked every potential service member questions about their sexuality. People who were part of the LGBTQT community were forced to answer questions vaguely or lie about their sexuality in order to be allowed to serve. Otherwise, they would run the risk of being sent home and be branded as sex perverts. By the middle of the war, the military sought new ways to target and expel homosexuals. Instead of charging individuals with sodomy, a court-martial offense, the military began identifying suspected homosexuals as quote-unquote psychopaths. In other words, Instead of charging service members with a crime of behavior or action, the military charged service members with a crime of being. Such a move created an efficient system of discrimination and prosecution of homosexual members of the military. Service members who were persecuted by a Section 8 blue discharge were purged from bases and units and sent to mental institutions in makeshift quarantine brigs 
where they suffered from isolation, depression, and humiliation as they were stripped of their rights and dignity. Despite the threat of persecution, gay and lesbian service members thrived during World War II. As with many young soldiers, many had not left their homes before the war, and so the conflict provided them with an opportunity to find a community, a camaraderie, and in some cases, their first loves. These new friendships gave gay and lesbian GIs refuge from the hostility that surrounded them, and allowed for a distinct subculture to develop within the military. Service members on every warfront enjoyed drag show entertainment, and an entire gay lexicon was developed from the writings of Dorothy Parker, and eventually an underground queer newspaper emerged, The Myrtle Beach Bitch or Myrtle Beach Bell, which covered shared news and the stories between bases and units. For many, World War II marked only the start of lifelong struggles with our identity. The systematic purges of bases and units ripped apart the communities and relationships that had been developed over shared sacrifices. Blue discharges followed veterans their entire lives and made them ineligible for all veteran services. Later after the war, in 1953, President Ike Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450, which banned homosexuals from federal employment. As a result, over 5,000 federal employees lost their jobs over accusations of homosexuality. These federal discriminatory actions drove LGBTQT people further into the shadows of society and emboldened law enforcement and politicians who became more violent towards gay and lesbian citizens. And we will talk about that later on in another lecture. Despite this, gay and lesbian veterans of World War II became some of the first to fight military discrimination and blue discharges in the years following the Second World War. However, military discrimination became a cornerstone issue for LGBTQT people in the civil rights movement in the decades following the Vietnam War. This debate continued until 2010, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was finally repealed and military service members could serve openly though this policy is coming under attack again. The point is that there is nothing more patriotic than doing your duty in the face of extraordinary odds, and anyone who serves their country is a hero, regardless of whom they love. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Homefront. The wartime workforce also included many African Americans. As you will recall, the Great Migration peaked during the Second World War, when 1.6 million blacks left the South for the North and the West, mainly to work in defense industries. Yet discrimination continued in the workplace. Southern blacks were not the only ones migrating for better jobs and opportunities. White Southerners left the South in great numbers, in particular, Okies and Arkies. These individuals settled into big cities and areas with defense industries and military bases, spreading Southern culture and cooking in the process. One black woman went from being a housemaid in Oklahoma and earning $3.50 a week to working as a riveter at Lockheed Martin in Los Angeles, where she earned $48 a week. She had never seen that much money in her life. At the plant, she worked alongside a, quote, big, strong white girl from a cotton farm in Arkansas, where saying the N-word was just part of life, end quote. 
many had never been that close enough to even touch a black person before. But shared work meant, quote, both of us had to relate to each other in ways that we never experienced before. Although we had our differences, we both learned to work together and talk together. We learned that despite our hostilities and resentments, we can open up to each other and get along. She learned that Negroes were people too, and I also saw her as a person, and we both gained from it. End quote. Stereotypes were being sanded away, and had it not been for the war, many African Americans would not have risen from poverty and reached more economic stability, and even got educated in less race-rigid schools. But not every story had a happy ending like this one, as numerous race riots broke out across the country during the war. More on that in a minute. Combined with the New Deal, World War II does more to develop the South and West than anything else. Urbanization, irrigation, pro-labor policies, and federal subsidies all lead to the rise of bigger cities in a new middle class. Despite all these people moving, there was still a major demand, particularly in agriculture. Remember, poor whites and blacks have enlisted, so you need larger amounts of people to pick your food. As a result, Americans created the Bracero Program, giving contracts to over 200,000 Mexican workers to work on U.S. farms. And these individuals were promised good pay, decent housing, and no discrimination. Obviously, these promises were not honored. Big agriculture wanted more cheap laborers, and the program lasted from 1942 to 1964 and sent a total of 5 million Bracaros to the United States at about 200000 per year. Despite the end date of 1964, it really started to unwind in 1954 when, and I'm sorry to say this word, Operation Wetback sought to repatriate many Mexican workers who had been in the United States for a decade. And this is all part of our tangled story of immigration in the United States. Please advance to the next slide entitled Race and War. We should note that it was not a foregone conclusion that African Americans would serve in the United States military forces. You should remember how African Americans had been largely discriminated against. Their property and persons had been subject to extra-legal destruction, and in the South, they could not exercise their 14th and 15th Amendment rights. So black intellectuals and people needed to decide, should you support a country that does not support you? Overwhelmingly, they said yes but with a caveat. And this was what was called the Double V Campaign. Victory against tyranny and fascism abroad, and victory at home against racism, segregation, and disfranchisement. In the Double V Campaign, it laid the seeds to the next phase of the Civil Rights Movement, which will emerge in the 1950s. Despite the movement of African Americans to areas with large war industries, many were relegated to menial or underpaying jobs. As a result, in 1941, A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, threatened that 50,000 African Americans would, quote, march on Washington to protest discrimination in wartime industries and the armed forces. FDR would not budge on the subject until his wife Eleanor 
impressed upon him the importance of making concessions to keep the country from this distraction. Randolph agreed to stop the march when FDR issued an executive order banning discrimination in defense industries and created the Fair Employment Practices Commission, the FEPC, which would oversee and enforce this order. Even with the FEPC around, integrated work sites became hotbeds of tension, and race riots erupted across the country over housing, as whites were upset that African Americans were moving into areas around them. They also feared intermarriage and what they described as the loss of property values. As you recall, the systemic financial discrimination that we alluded to in previous lectures. In the end, FDR could not do much about racial equality because of the politics of the era. He has political considerations to make because of those Southern Democrats in his coalition, though Eleanor Roosevelt always pushed him in favor of civil rights. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Race and War Part 2. Even with the admission of African Americans to armed service, blacks still faced official discrimination all around them. They were placed into segregated mess halls, training facilities, and combat units. Despite the problematic discrimination, the armed forces did much for racial uplift. Illiterate African Americans were educated by the armed forces, given technical skills, and most importantly, confidence in themselves as equal to white soldiers. A great example of this is the Tuskegee Airmen, a group of African American fighter pilots who protected American bombers over Europe. They had the highest protection rate of any combat fighter wing during the Second World War. Despite the fact that they were humiliated and discriminated against, they soon won the respect and admiration of the bomber crews they protected. Please click on the PowerPoint to watch a clip from the movie Red Tails. Okay, so did you watch it? I wish I could find better clips, but it is an amazing movie, and I highly recommend it. Another example of a discriminated minority that served patriotically was the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. This was a Japanese-American unit made up of military-aged Japanese men who could choose to either be in internment camps or join the armed forces. These men joined, fought valiantly, and became the single most decorated unit in the entire war, fighting through the hills and mountains of Italy, and took horrific casualties in the process. The last example of an oppressed minority fighting for American ideals were the Navajo Code Talkers. These were Native Americans from the American Southwest who used their unique language to create an unbreakable U.S. code. This helped the Americans win the Pacific War. This illustrates the importance of their culture, despite the fact that the American government had ultimately tried to destroy it before finally putting it to use during the conflict. The point is that despite the repression that many communities in the United States face, they are still Americans at heart and fight for their country honorably and bravely and should have been due everything promised to white soldiers. But as we will see, the benefits of veterans are not applied to these minorities later on. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Homefront. The last thing we need to cover about the home front is politics, because this will have important consequences for the creation of modern suburban America 
the middle class in our current political climate. First, in the 1942 midterms, the GOP picked up Congress for the first time since the Great Depression, which means FDR's New Deal is pretty much over, as the GOP and Southern Democrats can block anything they want. However, the Democrats and Republicans could agree on at least one last broad social package that will literally change America, and that is the GI Bill of 1944. This provides vocational training, higher education, housing and medical benefits, as well as low-interest loans to returning veterans. This will single-handedly double the number of college-educated Americans. It will greatly expand the middle class and leads to the rise of the suburbs across the country. However, this was never applied to minorities. The GI Bill is how veterans got their college education, how they got good jobs, cheap loans, bought their own homes in expanding suburbs in order to live the American dream. In our heads, we have this pull-ourselves-up-by-our-bootstrap mentality about the 1950s lifestyle. But in fact, federal subsidies only for white families create that opportunity and wealth. And combined with Social Security, it creates and sustains the white middle class. And this is how we explain the wealth gap between the races because of systemic racism like this. Lastly, in the election of 1944, FDR and Truman beat Thomas Dewey. FDR has won because of the war is on, and the country cannot envision going without him, who's been around for 12 years. Truman was put on the ticket because of FDR's squabbles with his previous vice president. As a result, Truman would make the fateful decision for the post-war world, and Japan in particular. Well, that is all I have for you for today. Please go and listen to Part 3 of the Second World War. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.